Yeah, the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, also a Christian, uh, wrote a few Christian apologetics books as well. Um, and he thought about this question about who Jesus is, you know, according to what Jesus said and what Jesus did. And he only came up with three real options to this. So this was in response to people saying that, yeah, I believe Jesus is a good teacher, but that's all there is. Yeah, I don't, I don't really believe in anything more than that. Uh, C.S. Lewis says that's foolish. You can't, you can't have that. There's three options only. Number one, he's either a liar, he's just making this stuff up. You know, it's all false. Uh, he's just deceiving people. Yeah. Number two, he's a lunatic. Um, he's crazy. He's, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, C.S. Lewis says he's got to be a lunatic on the level of a poached egg. That's his own words. That's pretty crazy, a poached egg, isn't it? Uh, he's, he's crazy. He's, he's completely deluded. Or the third option, he's Lord. He is who he says he is. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's God himself. Now, not all of you would agree with this conclusion, but it will come as no surprise to you that um, Christians believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is Lord. But what does that actually mean? Because let me tell you, um, just confessing that Jesus is Lord sometimes isn't enough because if you can confess that Jesus is Lord and still have things completely wrong. This is what we'll see in today's passage because you need to understand what sort of Lord Jesus is. And he's a king, not on our terms, but on his terms. We need to get this right because this has eternal consequences. Eternal consequences. Not simply just to see Jesus as Lord, but what sort of Lord is he? What sort of Lord is he? That's what we'll see today in Mark 8. Uh, just to give you a little bit of context of where we've come so far, Jesus has been uh, continuing on in his ministry. And last week, he was confronted by the Pharisees, the religious teachers. Uh, they were really worried about ritual uncleanliness and making sure they're pure, uh, his disciples are pure. And Jesus talks about what really makes us unclean, our hearts, our dirty hearts. He says this is the real issue. That's what we need to deal with. So he teaches the Pharisees, he teaches the crowd around him about these things. And as we pick up the narrative, we see him continuing to minister in foreign territory. Um, and uh, today we're, we'll actually be going through three points as we look at uh, our message today. Number one is not seeing the real Jesus. Number two is sort of seeing the real Jesus. And number three is are you following the real Jesus? Yeah? That's what we'll be going through today. So we're at our first point, not seeing the real Jesus. As we pick up the narrative, um, as you, uh, when Cece gave the Bible reading before, I don't know if you felt a bit of deja vu, a little bit of deja vu. Uh, huge crowd, needing bread, no bread around. Pretty familiar, isn't it? This is a replica, a repeat of the feeding miracle that just happened a little while ago where Jesus fed 5,000 people with just a few loaves of bread and a few fish. It reminds us about a few things, that Jesus is a good shepherd that provides every need for his people. But the difference of this one, this feeding miracle, is that it's not in Jewish territory. It's in Gentile territory, which means that he's the good shepherd, not just for the Jewish people, but for all nations. That's the first little thing to note there. But it also shows us something important, that the disciples are blind. This is what they say when Jesus raises the problem of not having bread. Have a look at verse 4 with me. 
This is what they said. Jesus says, there's no bread. There's a huge crowd. What will we do? This is what his disciples say. But his disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? What? Are you serious now, disciples? I wonder, where, what, what can we do about this problem of a huge crowd with no bread and we've only got a few pieces of bread? What could possibly happen here? How can we fix this problem? The disciples are completely blind to who Jesus Christ is. They've literally just seen him feed a crowd of 5,000 men with just a few pieces of bread. And then in this, in this situation, they're wondering, how can we fix this problem? They don't see the real Jesus. They're still blind despite having observed what he has done. His amazing power. They are completely blind. And this theme continues as well. It continues to the Pharisees, the religious teachers. Because after Jesus feeds the 4,000, uh, he gets back into the boat. So this is in Gentile territory, remember. He gets back in his boat and he heads back to Jewish ter- territory. As soon as he gets out of the boat, uh, the Pharisees come along. And they confront him and they test him. They say, give us a sign, Jesus. Show us that you're really from heaven. Show us who you really are. Now think about this. These religious teachers, they've already seen and heard Jesus doing amazing things. But can you remember what they said back in chapter 3? They said, this guy's on Satan's side. His power's from, uh, from Satan. He's demonic, actually. So the Pharisees have already seen signs. They've already seen Jesus' power. What will convince them? Well, Jesus isn't going to play their game. Have a look at verse 12 with me. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Because you know what their request to Jesus shows? Unbelief. Hard-heartedness. They're blind to who Jesus is. They don't want to see who Jesus really is. And Jesus is so fed up with these guys, even though he's just landed, he gets back in his boat and he goes right back across the sea again. That's how, that's how frustrated he is with the Pharisees. But poor Jesus, because he's trying to get away from dense, blind people, but he gets into a boat full of them. He's stuck with his disciples on this trip across the sea. And I think, to be honest, I think one of Jesus' greatest miracles was having patience with his disciples Incredible miracle there. Because he gives the disciple this, disciples this morning. Have a look at verse 15 with me. He says, Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Now, if you guys understand yeast, I know there's a few guys who are sourdough connoisseurs amongst us, and they do their own yeast and starters. So, but yeast is something that makes bread rise. It's actually a fungus uh, that causes carbohydrates to ferment, and you just need a little bit of it to permeate throughout the whole lump of dough to make the whole thing rise. And what Jesus is saying here is that uh, he's using this familiar image of baking, uh, of yeast and what it does to, to warn his disciples, don't get influenced by even a little bit of the teaching of the Pharisees, even a little bit of the teachings of Herod, that corrupt Jewish leader. Don't get influenced by them. Because that will corrupt you entirely. Be careful about that. That's what he's trying to warn the disciples of with this image. And have a look at the disciples' response in verse 16. They discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. Guys, we don't have any bread. That's why Jesus is talking about yeast. 
Oh, don't you just want to bang your head against the wall when you read about these disciples? You can almost feel Jesus' frustration through his words. Verse 17 and 18, have a look at these verses. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? Because think about it. These disciples have been with Jesus since day one. They've seen him do everything. They've heard him do everything. Amazing things. Yet they still haven't seen Jesus at all. They haven't seen the real Jesus. They're completely blind. Now, men, have you ever um, gone to the fridge to look for something and you just can't find that particular thing in the fridge? This is my experience I'm speaking of as well. You, you just can't find this thing in the fridge. You're looking for the butter. You've looked, you scanned the entire fridge, every single row, back and forth. You just can't find it. And then you, say to your, you, say to your, you ask your wife, where's the butter? And then she comes over and she just pulls it out. It's, just, it's like magic. Right in front of you. And you've been looking the whole time. It's just right in front of you. You just can't see it. And men, don't worry. It's actually scientific. Go Google that. I had a Google. It makes me feel a little bit better. It's scientific, actually. Uh, there's something in our genes. Um, it's true. Google it. Uh, because sometimes we can be looking at things, and they're right in front of us, and we just, but we don't see them at all. And this is exactly like the disciples right now. Jesus is right in front of their eyes. He's showing them. He's expressing. So he's presenting himself for them through his works, through his words, yet they can't see him. They can't see the real Jesus. They're completely blind. They're completely blind. He's saying, looking for bread? I'm the bread of life. I'm with you. But they're blind. Is there any hope for the disciples? Well, we'll see. Let's read on. And we're at our second point, sort of seeing the real Jesus. Now, Jesus comes to a village called Bethsaida, and this uh, man is brought to him, a blind man, for healing. So Jesus takes him out of the village. Um, he spits on his eyes. He lays his hands on the blind man. And the blind man uh, receives some partial vision. Jesus asks him, what do you see? He says, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. So he's got partial vision here. He can sort of see, but they're distorted outlines. So Jesus lays his hands on the blind man again, and this is what happens. Verse 25, the end of verse 25. He saw everything clearly. He saw everything clearly. And this is the key line, because this is the first person in the narrative that can actually see. It brings us some hope, maybe through Jesus Christ, that the disciples will be able to see. Maybe, just as Jesus healed physically, he can heal their spiritual blindness. They continue their journey. And as Jesus and his disciples head north, he asks them this question. Who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? That's the same question I got you to talk about as well. Who do people say that I am? The disciples reply, uh, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. So they're listing out a bit of a list of spiritual leaders, who's who, important people in Israel's history, but just mere people, prophets, you know, normal people with spiritual leadership. But then Jesus turns to them and he asks them this question. 
He asks them the question, the question that has been raised for us all throughout the first eight chapters of Mark, the question that the gospel keeps presenting to us over and over again, the most significant question that we can be faced with as we read through this narrative, and it's this question, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And this is the question that's raised to us as well. As readers of this narrative, as readers of this gospel, this is the question that's confronting us each and every single week. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? This is at the heart of the Christian faith. If we get this one wrong, then nothing else matters. Who is Jesus Christ? So for the disciples, here's the test. Can they see the real Jesus? Well, Peter, he steps up and here's his reply in Mark 8, verse 29. You are the Messiah. You are the Messiah. Yes, finally, they've got it. Peter's got it. He's understood. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the anointed one. He's the Christ. They all mean the same thing. This is the king that the Jewish people have been waiting for. Finally, they've seen it. We can breathe a bit of you know, a sigh of relief. Finally, they've got it. They've understood who Jesus is. Or have they? Because as you read on in verses 31 to 32, have a look at these verses with me. This is Jesus speaking. This is about Jesus. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him about what Jesus has said, about what his lordship will look like, what it means for him to be king. You see, the disciples, they've sort of seen Jesus. They've sort of seen the real Jesus. They've got the confession right. Yeah, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the king. But their idea of what sort of king Jesus is, is completely wrong. And we think back now to the healing miracle that just happened before. That Jesus had to heal this man in two steps. And the first time that he healed him, he just had partial vision. He just saw distorted outlines of what reality was. This is what the disciples are seeing right now. They haven't got real vision yet. They aren't completely healed of their blindness yet. They're just seeing distorted outlines of reality. This is what the disciples are seeing. And on a purely human level, you could forgive Peter for doing this. Um, he, he, you can imagine this scene. Jesus, um, Peter actually takes Jesus aside and says, uh, Jesus, you, yeah, you've got it wrong. Sorry. <laughs> I've actually, we, we know what the Messiah is supposed to do. He's supposed to liberate us uh, from oppression. He's supposed to free us. He's supposed to save us. That means you've got to defeat the Roman Empire and you've got to establish a powerful rule here. You can't die. You can't suffer. You've got it wrong, Jesus. Yeah? You're not going to be rejected. You've got this wrong. You can't die in shame. Jesus, come on. And you could forgive Peter for thinking that because this is the expectation that the Jewish people had been having for centuries. They've been waiting for the king to do this. But look at what Jesus says the Messiah must undergo. Have a look at these verses again. That him, the Son of Man must suffer many things 
be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. This is what Jesus as king will look like. Suffering, rejection, death. That is what his kingship will look like. And the key word amongst all of this, let me tell you what the key word is here. Must. Must. This is not an option. This is not just a preference. This is not just perhaps it will happen, maybe this will happen. This must happen. And you know what this must means? This is the divine plan. This is God's plan. It's not an accident. This is what must happen. It is absolutely necessary. Because Jesus must go to that cross. Jesus must die on that cross. Because if he doesn't, then there is no faith. There is no salvation. There is no payment for sins. There is no forgiveness. There is nothing. He must go to the cross and suffer and die. Otherwise, Christianity doesn't exist. Otherwise, there is no salvation for anyone. There is no hope for anyone. He must go to the cross. That is how he establishes his kingdom. That is how. Without the cross, without that suffering, without that rejection, without that death, there is nothing. We have nothing. There is no hope at all. Jesus must go to the cross. He must. Which is why his rebuke of, of, of Peter is so significant in verse 33. Jesus, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And this is a harsh rebuke. He's been called Satan, the great enemy of Christ. Because he can see that Peter is trying to lure him away from the cross. He's trying to tempt him away from having to go to the cross. He's promising that you can have a kingdom without the cross. That's Satan's line, isn't it? But the thing is that what Peter is actually saying is, I want you to be king on my terms, not on your terms. Jesus is saying, I'm the one that defines the terms of the kingship. I will be king on my terms, not yours. And it will come by suffering Rejection and death. That is how his kingship will come about. This is the real Jesus. This is the servant king. Do you see the real Jesus? Or have you just sort of seen him? You just got a partial picture of who he is. Have you seen the real Jesus? Maybe you're here today um, you know, and you're a confessing Christian. And as I ask that question, you're thinking, yes, I have seen the real Jesus. I've confessed who Jesus is. Um, I follow the real Jesus. But do you really? Forgive me for being skeptical. Do you really genuinely see the real Jesus? Because if you do, there's incredible cost to your life. Incredible cost. Everything changes. Have a look at um, verse 34 with me. This is where Jesus extends his teaching out to all people. Verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever 
That's everyone. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Friends, we talk a lot about discipleship in the church. This is what discipleship looks like. It's follow the leader. It's following in Jesus' footsteps. And do you know what Jesus' footsteps were? He carried his own cross. He got nailed to that cross. He suffered and died in rejection, in humiliation, in shame. He gave up everything, absolutely everything. He took on his own father's wrath for his people. He gave everything he had, his own life. And this is what the king calls us to, to follow in his footsteps, to follow the leader. This is what discipleship looks like. It's everything. Absolutely everything. Everything you have, everything you own, your entire life itself. Jesus calls us to deny ourselves. And you know what? For most of us, that idea, that's a foreign idea, isn't it? Denying ourselves. Um, when you think about Australian society that we live in, um, what do people, you know, what's the goal? What are we here for? What are we doing this thing called life for? What are we working for? What are we studying for? What are we aiming for? What's the goal? As we live in Australian society, what do most people aim for? Let me tell you what I think it is. I think it's comfort. It's comfort. It's to have that money. It's to have that house. It's to have that car. It's to have that nice family. It's to have the ability to buy things when I want to buy them. It's the ability to do whatever I want. It's to be comfortable. It's to be comfortable. That's what we aim for. That's the ultimate thing. If um, many of us are from migrant families, that's why your parents came here. To give you comfort, right? To give you that security. It's because they love you. That's what they want for you. And that's drilled into us that this is the ultimate goal. Comfort, comfort, comfort. You should be comfortable. That's what you're aiming for, to get at a stage where you're comfortable. But Jesus is saying that following him is very, very uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable because it means denying yourself. It means not having the things that you want. It means not just, just being able to sit back and relax and enjoy. It's denying yourself. Do you know what it means to take up your cross? It means you have to be ready to die in shame, in humiliation, in rejection for the sake of Christ. That's what it means. That's what Jesus is calling us to. Our society tells us many things, doesn't it? It tells us to enjoy ourselves. It tells us to indulge ourselves. It tells us to satisfy ourselves. But deny yourself? No, that doesn't sound right. But this is the call of the king. Deny yourself. Give up everything you have. Everything. Your very life for the king. That's what discipleship looks like. That's what it looks like. Which means we need to do this. We need to stop making decisions according to your comfort and start making decisions according to your king. That's the call. Stop making decisions according to your comfort. Start making decisions according to your king. This is very countercultural for us. I think one of the reasons this is the case is because we think we're entitled to comfort. Yeah, we work hard, we you know, study hard, whatever, we make our money. Um, we're entitled to comfortable things. We're entitled to our overseas holidays. 
We're entitled to our hobbies. We're entitled to have fun. And yes, all of those things are good graces of God that He gives us, but you don't des- you're not entitled to them. You know, God doesn't have to give them to you. You know who owns them? They're God's. All of those good things. We, are enti- we feel entitled to all the things that we enjoy, the things that make us comfortable, but no, friends, because they're not yours. They're God's. This is God we're talking about, the God of the universe who gave you everything. And let's get practical, friends. Let's, let's think really hard about how does this impact our life? If we're to stop making decisions according to your comfort and start making decisions according to your king, what does that look like? Let me, let me talk to you about work. Work is obviously very important for us. We're either studying to get to a job that we want or we're in a job and we're trying to move up the ladder or we're you know, just working hard each and every day. How do you think about work? How do you decide what sort of job that you take? Well, this is an easy one, isn't it? The job that gives you the most money and the job that gives you the most respect. That's how we decide, isn't it? But at what cost does that come? What cost? What needs to be sacrificed on the way to your perfect career, your perfect fulfillment, your perfect comfort? What needs to be sacrificed? Does your family need to be sacrificed on the way to that? Does your time with God's people need to be sacrificed? Does your own personal spiritual life your time with God in prayer and the Word, does that need to be sacrificed? You know, when I think about it, like, perhaps I was wrong because I said before that um, we, we don't like that idea of denying ourselves and sacrifice. That's quite foreign. But actually, no, we're okay with it if it's for our own comfort, to get to comfort in the end. We can sacrifice if it means that we're going to be comfortable in our own life, in our career. What needs, what cost does your work come at? Do you consider those things when you think about a job that you're taking? Do you think about those things when you're about to accept that promotion or sign that contract? Do these things even come into your mind? Because these are the things that matter to our king. Are you willing to deny yourself, deny your comfort for your king? Here's another one for you. Where should I live? What's the, you know... as we move up and we're buying property or thinking about our future, where should we live? Here's another easy one, right? No-brainer. Somewhere with high resale value. Somewhere that's close to my workplace and convenient for me. You know, that's easy. That's where I buy my place. But, friends, have you considered where you live and how that will impact your life in our community? Are you, living, are you going to choose a house where you can be a part of the community of God's people? Yeah, we, uh, a house which uh, allows you to have people over to, as a life group to study the Word together. A house, uh, a place that will allow you to do hospitality, to love others, to love newcomers to our church, invite them over for a meal. Um, a house that won't uh, be too far from your ability to come and meet with God's people regularly. Have you considered those things? Do you consider those things at all when you think about a place to live? If you're not quite at that stage for the future, what will your considerations be? What is your criteria? Your comfort or your king? And how about what should I do with my spare time and money? Maybe you're at a stage in your life where you've worked hard for quite a few years. You might be slowing down a little bit. You've got a bit of extra cash, a bit of extra time. What will you do with that? 
For most of us, the answer is, do the things that we've always wanted to do. Travel the world. Buy that car we've always wanted. Uh, do this holiday that is really appealing to us. But how about using your time and money for the sake of the kingdom? How about using that extra money that you have to support the work of the gospel through missionary organizations or support the work of the gospel through our own church? How about using that extra time that you have um, to meet with others and encourage them in our church? Read the Bible together. How about using that extra time that you have to um, start a little prayer ministry where you just ask people for prayer points and you pray for them during the week? And it's not easy. You know, it'll take a little bit of effort. It'll take a little bit of um, sacrifice, perhaps, of your comfort. But these are the things that matter to the king. It's about denying ourselves and our pursuit of comfort and living for the king. This is the Christian life. Some of you, as you hear these things, are thinking, but Iggy, what you're asking me to do is change the course of my entire life. I have to decide my studies, what uni course I do. I have to decide what job I do and where I live according to Jesus. Is that what you asked me to do? Yes. Yes. That's what I'm asking you to do. And you think, look at what Jesus asked you to do. Give, his entire, give your entire life for him. Everything that you have. When you put things in that perspective, then I think sometimes, even as I say these things, I'm being quite soft, really, to ask you to make a few decisions for the sake of the gospel when Jesus demands everything that you have. Everything. The big, in the big scheme of things, listing out that little list of decisions about our jobs, about our lives, you know, where we live, and things like that. It's a small thing in the big scheme of things when we're thinking about living for the king. But the question is, are you even willing to take, do the small things? Are you willing? Are you willing to deny yourself? Are you willing to sacrifice for the king? If you're not, then maybe you haven't seen the real Jesus. You still haven't got it. Maybe you haven't seen the real Jesus. Becoming a Christian is handing Jesus a blank check. He can take whatever he wants. You've got to be willing to give it to him. Now, friends, all of this doesn't sound very appealing so far, does it? Uh, for me, if, if you're coming in and you're just hearing about this whole message of Christianity for the first time, it doesn't sound like something maybe you want to jump on board with right now. Um, why should I pay so much? What's the point? Why should I be giving up so much? Well, Jesus finishes off this section with a lesson in kingdom economics. Kingdom economics. Have a look at verses 35 to 37 with me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? This is kingdom economics. Kingdom economics. I don't, I don't know if there's any economics majors in here. But in one sense, it doesn't seem to make much sense, does it? Lose your life for Jesus and you'll save it. Keep your life for the world and you'll lose it. That's the formula that Jesus is giving us. Lose your life for Jesus and you'll save it. Keep your life for yourself and you'll lose it. 
This is the currency of the kingdom. We need to see the value of what we are dealing with here. That's the key, seeing the value. Often what stops us uh, giving up things in this world is that we attach so much value to them. We attach so much value to our work and our careers and our comfort that we aren't willing to give them up. Wealth, security, comfort, that's what we value. They are everything to us. That's our goal. But Jesus lays it out clearly. What good is it for someone to gain the world but lose their soul? Where's the value at? Isn't it scary that you can have everything in this world yet have nothing at all because your soul is lost? Isn't that scary? Where's your value at? But don't forget the flip side. Jesus offers eternal life for those that give, him, give up for him right here in this temporary life. He offers eternal life, eternal life, satisfaction and fulfillment and joy with him for eternity. But so often we're like the disciples and we're worrying about where our bread is when we're in the presence of the one who provides everything for us for eternity. He gives us everything. What will it cost you to gain your comfort here? Are you willing to give up for Jesus in the future? Jesus finishes with a verse that is fearsome. Have a look at verse 38. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Every time I read this verse, it hits me like a ton of bricks. I don't know about you. It just hits me. There's a lot of reasons that we aren't willing to give up for Jesus, but Jesus nails us this one. It's because you're ashamed. It's because you're ashamed. And I wonder, if, is that your experience? Is this why you don't want to live for Jesus? Because you don't want to be seen as that weird Christian that does weird things. You don't want to be seen as that person that sacrifices all these things. You don't want to be seen as that brainwashed Christian, the Christian that takes things too seriously. You want to be that Christian that all your non-Christian friends say, hey, I'm glad you're like, not like the other Christians. Yeah, we can still relate to you. We can still hang out with you. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that you're not that different from us. That's what we want. We don't want to stand out. We don't want to seem weird because we're ashamed of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour, who died for us in shame on the cross. But hear what Jesus says. He says, if you're ashamed of me now, I'll be ashamed of you when I come back on that final day in judgment. And that is a fearsome, fearsome thought. Are you ashamed of Jesus Christ? Is that why you're not giving up anything for him? Is that why you're not willing to deny yourself for him? Is it shame? Is it shame? What will it cost you to have everything in this world? Are you willing to give up your soul? The real Jesus calls us to follow him. And it will take sacrifice. It will take everything you have. But it will be worth it. It will be worth it. Let me finish by telling you a story of this man. Some of you may have may know him. This is Jim Elliott. He was a missionary who sought to evangelize a remote group of native people in Ecuador in, 1950s, in the 1950s. He prepared for this trip for many, many years. He gathered a team. He trained in linguistics. He learned the culture of the land. And eventually, he took his little team over to Ecuador. And this group of natives was very violent. So 
that they spent a long, long time trying to just build up relationships with them. Uh, they had a little, uh, little biplane sort of thing that they used to fly overhead, and they used to lower in a basket uh, gifts for them each and every day. So they did that for months and months. They flew overhead and lowered gifts to build the trust with the native peoples. And they seemed to me making some good progress. So uh, one day, uh, Jim Elliott and his team decided, we're going to go in. Let's make contact with these people. We need to tell them about Jesus. So on that, on that day, they, they went on foot into the land, ready to tell the saving gospel message to these people. And a group of ten natives ambushed them and killed them with spears on the spot. And that was it. That was the end. That was the very people that were seeking to reach with the message of Jesus. Killed them. All that work, all that preparation, gone. Jim Elliott was just 29. He had the world at his feet. Uh, he studied architecture, was successful in sports, and socially, his fantastic public speaker had immense influence on his university campus. He had all the comforts we could ever hope for. He had everything. This is the sort of stuff that we aim for. Yet he spent the prime years of his life preparing for this mission trip, and then he was killed immediately when he sought to reach these people. On all accounts, his life was a massive waste, a complete waste. But that's not the way he would have seen it. Because in a journal entry in his journal, a few years before uh, his death, he wrote this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. I love this quote. Let me read it again. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You see, Jim Elliott, he knew the cost of taking up his cross, but he also knew the invaluable, eternal treasure awaiting him at the end of this journey. Jim Elliott, he, he saw the real Jesus. He knew the real Jesus personally. Do you? Do you? Let me pray. Now, Father God, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who came and gave everything for us, everything, absolutely everything. And we pray that we can follow the king, that we will be willing to deny ourselves, to let go of the desires of our own sinful hearts, to let go of our pursuit of comfort, to stop pursuing comfort and to start making decisions according to our king. Father, help us because we know this is unnatural, of our own accord, we cannot do this. But by the work of your Spirit, transform our hearts to live for Jesus Christ so we can share in that eternal treasure with him in the future. And we pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.